A reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, Peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the workers deserve his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Well, I also want to welcome you this morning. My name is Ed. I'm one of the pastors here as well, and we are so glad you came out to be with us on this rainy morning uh, to uh, be a part of what's going to happen here today. And uh, I have something I want to talk to you about today that I think is really important. In fact, it's so imp- I have written, I have post-it notes today, which is unusual for me, but mostly it tells me uh, not to say everything that pops into my head. Uh, <laughs> Uh, those of you who have known me for a long time know that I have a busy brain. Uh, my brain is constantly working. Even when I'm up here, I'll see things and I'll go, you should probably address that. And then I go, nope, nope, don't have time for that. Let that go. <laughs> and today particularly, I have so much that I think that uh, we need to hear that uh, I'd like to be a part of uh, helping God get across to us, me included, um, that uh, I'm just trying to really focus and I'm going to uh, get at it. So we've been in this series called Jesus Stories for the last few weeks, and you know we're only uh, 50 days. Today we're 50 days away from celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, the highlight of uh, Christianity for us when everything begins to change. And every year leading up to that time, we focus on Jesus. Now we're Jesus people here all the time, but leading up to it, we really focus on the life of Jesus and the stories he has for us. So from the beginning of the year, we started talking about what it meant to follow Jesus and hear the call of discipleship. And in the end, it comes down to that Jesus calls us and we have to decide. I get to decide. Will I turn my feet to go the way he goes like those first disciples? Will I step out of what I want to do, turn my feet toward him, and then I just start moving? I start moving with him. And along the way, he invites me into this interactive life with him where he is directing and I don't become a robot. I interact just like the first disciples did, but I'm, I'm living my life, but he's living it with me. I'm walking along as a follower of Jesus. And we saw in that very first week when we talked about it that Jesus comes to this little guy named Zacchaeus, or as one of the things that got put out of that message, if you remember, was maybe he wasn't the wee little man. Maybe Jesus was a wee little man, and he had to get in the tree so he could see Jesus. I, that was one of my favorite parts of that message. I had never thought about it that way. But when he comes into a life, he's regularly saying to him, hey, a part of coming to follow me when you turn your feet toward me is you are turning away. You have to turn away, and you have to repair the things that are behind you. So Zacchaeus comes and he repents. He turns toward Jesus and he said, hey, I'll begin to give back to everybody that comes after me. And then Jesus just goes around and these disciples that have begun to follow him, they begin to see these amazing things taking place. He lands on a beach. It's almost like he goes across the lake on purpose because when he gets there, he does this one thing and then he gets back in the boat and he leaves. And Jason taught us that he was there with this guy who was a 
Well, the only way we know him is as this demoniac. He, he's this guy that's just filled with evil spirits and he's become isolated. But Jesus, Jesus doesn't want anyone isolated. He doesn't want anybody to be alone, hurting themselves. So he heals this man and brings him back into community. And then the whole disciples are just thrilled with what happens. They're amazed with what Jesus can do. And then we talked about how Jesus comes to the religious leaders. And we often miss Jesus loves them too, you know. He's for them. So every time he's talking to them and it feels like to us, he's just going at them. What he's really trying to get them is, hey, I know you think that by being right and keeping rules that you're right with God. But the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. The only thing that matters I mean, you love God by loving the people around you, and you guys keep, you keep messing it up, and you keep excluding people. And then last week, we see him with this woman who's caught, and she's naked before him, and we found out that we can be completely honest and vulnerable and stand before the Lord with no mask. And he says to us, hey, I don't condemn you. I love you. I am for you, but you can't follow me and live the way you've been living. I mean, you have to leave that behind. And so we've been learning about how you live in an interactive kind of life with Jesus. And I'll remind you that Nathan, early on in this thing, he said to us the word cooperation, you know, really, if you break it down, it's cooperating. I'm cooperating my life with Jesus. Jesus and I are cooperating my life, the life that's in front of me. So now I'll give you a confession. I've been doing this thing for a long, long time. I've been standing in front of people and living for Jesus. But most of my life, I have been operating my life and occasionally asking Jesus to co with me. <laughs> most of my life, I've been trying to do things in I haven't really been doing interactive life with Jesus very well, and it has been exceptionally frustrating. You have been exceptionally frustrating to me. <laughs> Mainly because I, I, haven't been, I haven't been cooperating. And so when it comes to prayer, I've gotten messed up with prayer. How do you do prayer? And how, you know, is it me just trying to get God to do what I want him to do? What does God want to do? And when you really begin to operate and cooperate with God, you find out, oh, we're, we're having a conversation. We're actually having a conversation. Jesus and I are working this thing out together. Well, a part of what I've done for the last 40-something years is I've spent most of my time with people who are just trying to figure this out, like a lot of you all are. And I've found that people have frustrations with prayers, like I do, like the Ed. Am I doing it right? And I'll tell them what I think, and then I'm thinking in my head, I don't know if you're doing it right. I'm not doing it right. I'm trying to do it right, and they're trying to do it right. And so today, I, in our study, I want, to, I want to talk to you a little bit about prayer before we get to what we're going to get to. You noticed in the scripture that got read that just before this, uh, Jesus says, and he asked them to pray. And, you know, if Jesus asks you to pray something, if you actually pray what Jesus asks you to pray, your odds of getting an answer go way up. 
You know, if Jesus says you ought to pray this and then you decide I'm going to pray it, that one's probably getting done. And so Jesus asked his disciples to pray this not once but twice. There's a prayer that Jesus said. He says, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. You should pray that the Lord of the harvest will send workers into the field. Now, the first time he asked them to pray that, he, he, he says to them, pray for this, and he says it to the 12. Did you ever wonder why there were 12? Well, some of you who know a little bit about the Bible know that uh, it's the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus is, we're told eventually, that they're going to sit on 12 thrones. They're, they're becoming like the 12 tribes of Israel. The second time, which is the one that we just read about, Jesus doesn't say it to the 12. He says it to 72 people that he's about to send out. Do you know why there's 72? Well, it's because in the history of Israel, there were these 72 judges that get appointed by Moses. Moses can't oversee all the people, and his father-in-law comes and says, hey, you are doing it wrong, dude. You got to appoint some people to help you out with this, and 72 judges get appointed. Now, I just want you to know that those aren't incidental kind of things. What Jesus is doing with the people of Israel when he points the 12, and all of the leaders see it. It's why when people say, you know, how can you kill somebody who's just walking around saying love everybody? When he points the 12, he's saying to them, hey, the kingdom of God that I'm saying about, I'm, I'm literally putting it in place. You are being replaced. You are getting replaced, leaders. I'm putting 12 people in place over the 12 tribes. Your job. I'm taking it. Then the 72, they get announced. Do you know who the 72 judges begin, eventually become? They become what's known in our part when we read the New Testament. They become this phrase, and you might see it when you read through the life of Jesus. They're known as the Sanhedrin. It's like, it's like the court. It's the high court. And these religious leaders that follow Jesus around, that's who they are. So he sends out the 72 and he announces to the people, I'm sending good news of the kingdom. The kingdom is at hand and I've appointed the 72. You also are being replaced. He's making an incredible political statement to these people. It's not arbitrary. He's saying the kingdom is at hand and I'm serious about this business. And the Israelites that are watching, the religious leaders that are watching, they're not yet following Jesus. They know he's saying, I'm setting up my kingdom. Now you read these accounts and we'll see this as we get closer to uh, Easter. You see Jesus doing these three things his whole life. He's announcing the kingdom. The kingdom is at hand. He's going about doing good and he is driving out the forces of darkness. Jesus is announcing the kingdom. Everybody's welcome. Come on into the kingdom. He's doing good by healing, and he is pushing back on the forces of darkness. So people are watching, the 12, and then he sends the 72, and they see, oh, we see what you're doing. You want to rule over this nation. But of course, we know when Jesus is resurrected, he says, I have all authority. Jesus was not interested in the nation of Israel. He was going to rule the world. He is king, and he was setting up his kingdom and he was going to take over. And you and I, we are the evidence that what Jesus wants, he gets. 
For the last 2,000 years, Jesus is getting what is wants. His movement continues to move, and people continue to come on part. There is no other God movement in the history of all humanity that has moved like the movement of Jesus. And it's been happening the same way for 2,000 years. It's what we talked to you a little bit about when we talked about the invitation cards, which makes some of you nervous. It happens person by person, life by life. As people go around and they, they say to other people, hey, the kingdom of God, it's good. Living with Jesus, interacting with Jesus, it's a good life. And so I'll just say to you before we get to the rest of this today, this whole thing, I just hope you'll relax about the, the inviting thing. I'm not saying don't do it. It's a part of what we do. But your job's not to convert anybody. Your job's not to convict anybody. Your job's not to convince anybody. Your job isn't to win anybody. As disciples of Jesus, we together collectively and as individuals, we are engaged in a battle where the kingdom of God for King Jesus, we are against the kingdom of the world, but we are not against any person. Every person no matter what evil flows out of them, every person has the image of God in them. And like our great God is for them, we are for them. We battle for them. We live for them. And this is the idea of spiritual warfare that Jesus begins to describe in these verses. But because we messed up this idea of spiritual warfare, and most of you, when you think about it, you think about somebody's head turning around backwards and spitting out pea soup. <laughs> you can't hear it correctly. And you've used it, and people like me have stood on stages, and they said spiritual warfare, and we've used it as a weapon for people who disagree with us. Nothing could be further from God's truth. And so I want to spend today trying to reclaim Christ's desire for his people in the kingdom to do battle against our true enemy for the sake of the people that are around us. The Apostle Paul is, aside from Jesus, the person most credited by historians for the spread of Christianity across the Roman world. And he once wrote to a church he started in the town of Ephesus and said about spiritual warfare, we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. Human beings are not our enemies. He writes a similar thing to the church in Corinth. We are human, but we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. The battle we have been called to is for people, not against people. But let's also be clear. We're also not talking about the kind of spiritual warfare that makes a good movie. Demons coming out of people, heads spinning, there are dark forces that work against us, but for most of us, the battle we are called to fight is the darkness at work that is trying to convince us that my neighbor is my enemy. The truth is that we are either battling the forces of evil with love, or we're being tricked by our enemy into fighting those I was called to love. Whether they agree with me or not, believe like me or not, vote like me or not, even if they consider themselves my enemy, I have been called to love them like Jesus. And when I do, I'm fighting the real enemy. This is what the 72 found out when they came back from their mission. Jesus saw all that they had done, and he said to them, I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. He's saying, as you are out loving and serving and proclaiming my kingdom, you are bringing down the enemy's empire. 
you became the embodiment of what I taught you to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, just like it is in heaven. You weren't just eating meals and doing good works and teaching about me. You were doing battle against Satan. And they probably thought that didn't feel like warfare. And that's because we don't wage war like humans do. This is everyday, ordinary kind of warfare. Each week when we leave one another, we're encouraged to do so in obedience and humble service to King Jesus, as he sends us to those that he is already pursuing. This is everyday warfare. It's bringing the kingdom with us everywhere we go. And we're not talking about handing out tracts or pushing something on people they don't want. We're talking about love, because love is our chief weapon, which is why Jesus gave these instructions to his disciples. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom, and it doesn't mean just the absence of conflict. It means well-being or wholeness. And so the first act of a disciple of Jesus is to use our position as children of God to bless people. We pray for God's wholeness for people. Practically, it looks like us coming to the place where every person we see is someone that we want God to bless. Jesus said, God blesses the righteous and the unrighteous, and so should we but we have to learn how to see like God sees because most of us go through life and look at people through the lens of approval or disapproval. We don't like to think of ourselves like this because it feels judgmental, but all of us are constantly assessing others. We notice that we agree with or mostly what we don't agree with. We keep records of wrongs and judgments and we have this constant running commentary in our heads about it. But for kingdom people, our opinions are not the most important. We are learning how to cooperate with God, and so we want to see people from Jesus' perspective. And on the cross, Jesus made clear, every person you interact with, no matter how despicable or vile they are to you, they have unimaginable worth. And if that's Jesus' opinion of them, then our job is to align ourselves with his opinion of them. And one of the best ways we can train ourselves to see people like Jesus is to pray for them to use this powerful authority God has given us to call down his peace and wholeness and harmony into their life. We can bring a little slice of the kingdom to them. We become, as one preacher puts it, little blessing machines. As we go through our life interacting with other people, we can interact with God. We can learn to escape the pattern of our world and our enemy, the pattern of judgment and condemnation. And instead, we can begin to see people the way God does. And we can cooperate with him in blessing them. But this only happens if we ask for it, if we look for it. If we go around praying blessings on everyone God has placed in our lives, this is what it looks like to push back the enemy and to bring the kingdom everywhere we go. This is Everyday Warfare. After the last few years of finally getting this clear in my head, I'm convinced that blessing people even if they don't know, I'm blessing them. Blessing people, even when they don't know, it changes things. And it for sure deepens my heart of love, which is what God wants. It just becomes, if this becomes our normal way of thinking about interacting with our world, which I am convinced is the way Jesus interacted with the world, that if this becomes the way that I have this authority, that I can, I can bless people in my world, it can become normal to me, much like judging has been normal to me every day of my life. And what I mean is this natural thought, even that some of you are having right now, of why did he wear black? 
And I don't, I don't even know. I mean, I'm just, no, I know, the, I know the emails that people get about, you know, what was up with your hair today? It's just these thoughts that we have that this unflowing thought of that's good, this is bad, this is good, and I hold on to what's bad, this judging that I can't stop. I'm convinced that if we'll convi- get clear to us that Jesus has given us the authority to bless people, it can become normal. And I'll say something really profound It won't sound profound, but once I began to believe it, it was profound to me. Prayer changes and helps people. Now, I know that doesn't sound like much. And I know in our world where we've thought that social media somehow is, you know, the place where everything goes on. And when you say thoughts and prayers, if somebody expressed something, you say prayer, then everybody who doesn't believe in God, which why would they think prayer matters? I mean, you get that, right? Why would they think it matters? When we say thoughts and prayers, they go, oh, they're not really doing anything. But prayer really, really matters. Praying for someone is not just something we do while we're getting ready to really do something. Prayer is doing something. Jesus' brother, James, says, The prayers of God's people are powerful and effective. It's powerful and effective. When I'm with someone and they don't even have to know I'm doing it, I have an opportunity to to push a little bit of the kingdom into their life. It's part of the privilege of happens when you decide to turn your feet toward Jesus and you start walking. When you believe that the kingdom of God is here and it's near, I bring a little bit of heaven. We're called to be servants of this world. And the only way you can really serve everyone is I can become a person that I'm just a little blessing machine walking around and I'm blessing people and I kingdomize every little environment I go into. It helps them. And I know for sure it changes my ability to love people. Every week around here, we will say at some point, and we print on things, love everyone always. And I love that that's become what we say around here all the time. But I have to tell you, I have a deep fear that it becomes a meme. It becomes something that people say, and we don't actually think about how I will have to do that. What would I have to do to actually do that kind of thing? I tell you what I've found over the last few years of actually trying to do this with some men and women who at the core say, I want to do this kind of thing. And we'll set aside time where we're just going to walk into every environment and say, God, help me to see this the way you see it and hear what you hear so that I can bless the people the way. What I have found is I have gone in with that prayer. What I bump into is my immediate judgment of why I shouldn't bless somebody. I walk around and I see somebody that's asking for help and I go, well, probably they don't work. And instead of just saying a prayer and blessing them, which I could do so easily and remind myself, they are made in the image of God and I don't know their story. I could bless them. But instead, I just let the judgment that is the wickedness of our world rule my mind. I must set aside space in my life to realize that this is a part of it. See, 
The one thing I know for sure, everybody wants to know what's going on with the evil powers that work in the world. You know what for sure I know the evil powers are doing in our world? They are dividing me and you. They are doing everything they can to keep me and you apart. They are doing everything they can to keep us from living out because the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love. And if they can push us apart, they know for sure we will not love. And so every time I walk into a place and I see a person and I say that person has incredible worth to God and I bless them, that is an act of war against the powers of evil and I kick a little Satan butt. And you can do it. Wherever you go, wherever you are, I mean, the good news is if you're a student here and you don't think you can pray in school, there ain't never been a school that you couldn't pray in. Every one of y'all prays before a test because you didn't study. (laughs) And we did too when we were there. You can sit, and if you're not interested in what's happening in this room and you're trying not to get in trouble, you can just bless me. You can pray for me. You can bless the people around you. You can walk into a restaurant today and bless every person in there while you're waiting for your food to come instead of wondering why it took so long. You can drive around and wonder, like I often do, why can people not figure out the simplicity of a roundabout? (laughs) Or you can say, that is a person made in the image of God and he knows they need a blessing right now. The most difficult part of this, the most difficult part is you must decide to do it. That is the most difficult part. You must decide this matters. And you must decide this is a part of turning my feet after Jesus who was walking around blessing people doing good, and I will too. So then Jesus says, and Here's where it gets really interesting. You remember the part where he says, wherever you are, stay there and eat whatever they put before you? That'd be a challenge for some of you. When you enter town and you're welcome, eat whatever's offered you. Now, eating in the first century, it was a form of building relationships. You didn't ask people to have meal with you unless you were serious about wanting to be in a relationship with them. And Jesus says, if a house actually invites you into it, in other words, they want to build a relationship with you, you honor that. And as long as they will listen and have fellowship with you, you do everything you can to eat and have fellowship with them. Now, when you think about that, you think it sounds like your mom telling you just to be polite, but that's not what it is. In the first century, like in most cultures that aren't as privileged as we are, people aren't used to hearing, oh, I'm sorry, I can't eat that, I have an allergy. Oh, I'm sorry, I don't like that. And it feels like you're rejecting them. Uh, I'll say this quickly. A number of years ago, I was in Ecuador for the very first time. And uh, we were told just before we were to go that they were going to serve us. And normally they tell us when you go on these trips, don't eat anything people offer you. Just say you can't because you'll get sick. But on this one, they said what they're going to offer you, you can't eat. And we need some people to volunteer to eat it because you're not going to want to eat it. And I said, I can eat anything. And they only needed about 10 of us, and there were 10 of us that volunteered. And then we got there, and I can't remember the name of it, but what they said before us was a giant hamster. (laughs) It was a roasted rat. 
And at that point, you have to decide, can I eat that? And in the name of Jesus, you can. Because they were giving us the best they had. They don't eat that all the time. They only eat it on holiday celebrations. And what Jesus is saying here to his disciples, and you have to remember, these are Orthodox Jews, and even today, Orthodox Jews have all these rules about you. You have to eat what's clean and unclean. And he's saying to these good Jewish men and women, hey, when you go out, I know that you have lots of rules about food, what you can and you can't eat. I'm asking you to set all of that aside. And he says it twice in this verse so they don't miss it. I just want you to set all those rules aside. So here's how it applies to us where you're not going to have this problem because people in our world accept you don't eat certain things. Some of you may have religious convictions that for the sake of helping people see the goodness of the kingdom of God, you just may need to set aside. That's not what you expected to hear today. You may have deeply religious convictions, but they don't have the same importance because what is the most deeply held conviction for people who follow Jesus? The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. People get divided along the lines of religious convictions and in our world now, national convictions and political convictions and all the rest. And Jesus is saying, don't let any of those convictions separate you. Relationship trumps that. Now let me be really clear because the Bible's clear about this and I don't have time. Jesus is not saying you go out and you sin for the sake of relationship. He is not saying that. I am certainly not saying that, so put your email away. (laughs) He's saying, you don't ask people who don't know God to live like they know God. You don't ask people who have not set up the same standards that you have in your life because you know Jesus and you know how to follow him. You don't ask them to be responsible for your convictions. Love is the ultimate spiritual conviction for people who follow Jesus. And what he's saying is, You need to have some flexibility for the sake of Jesus. He's saying, particularly to the 72 who are going out, don't worry what others think about you back in Jerusalem. You can handle whatever criticism they have, but the Lord, he wants you to honor the relationship. If you follow Jesus, this is the attitude that Jesus had. It's why you see him go everywhere. He eats with prostitutes, and he's in the homes of these religious rulers, and they're often saying to him, if... He knew who he was hanging out with. If he was really the son of God, he wouldn't do that. But he really was the son of God, and he really did know, and he still hung out with them for the sake of having impact in their life. If you go into every relationship and your goal is to become the morality police, you're not going to have relationships very long. It's just the way it is. The Apostle Paul later forbids the churches that he start to judge the lives of people who don't follow Jesus the way that we judge people who do follow Jesus. And I would just say in our culture, we really, really have to watch this because there is a strong Christian culture in our, in our world that's gotten tied with political kind of things, and we have a way of judging everything in our world by people who don't live exactly to the convictions we do, and we separate people. And when we do, we play into the hand of the evil one. I love the way Dallas Willard says it, so I'm going to put a quote on the screen. 
uh, so we can read it together. Dallas talks about this, about how you do this in your workplace. How do you do this in your workplace? He says, we don't do this by becoming the Christian nag in residence. Some of you work with that dude. You do not do it by becoming the Christian nag in residence, the rigorous upholder of all propriety and the dead-eye critic of everybody else's behavior. You don't go into your work environment and you have all the things out. Everybody knows you're a critic and they don't show you who they are. Go on, Jamie. But a gentle, firm, non-cooperations with things that everybody knows to be wrong. I don't do the things that everybody knows wrong. Together with a sensitive, non-officious, non-intrusive, non-obsequious, I'll get to all of that in a minute, service to others should be our usual overt manner. This should be combined with an inward attitude of constant prayer for whatever kind of activity our workplace requires and a genuine love for everyone involved. Now, if you weren't good on the language section of the SAT, what he means by all those non-words is you don't go in and you make it official that, hey, I'm the official servant here. I'm Jesus' person. I will serve everybody in this place. You just go in a normal human being kind of way, and when you see things that people need, you serve them. You love them. You help them with a constant attitude of prayer. I don't do anything that's wrong. I don't agree with anything that's wrong, but I don't make a display of doing all the right things so that people with nothing. Then he goes on in the very next part, and he says, and we should be watchful and prepared to meet any obvious spiritual need or interest in understanding Jesus' words that are truly loving, thoughtful, and helpful. Meaning, anytime I can interject anything that I know the Lord has said that I know that would help them, I don't have to quote scripture, I just give them the principle. I try to serve them. And then he goes on. But the specific work to be done whether it's making axe handles or tacos, selling automobiles, teaching kindergarten, investment banking, or political office, evangelizing, or running, for Christian, or running a Christian education program, performing in the arts, teaching English as a second language, it is of central interest to God. And all he means in that is when you are at work, you be the best you can be for the people you work for, and you pray for them. The best witness you have is to be good at it and to love the people around you. We do our life, our everyday life, bringing the kingdom of God everywhere we go. We want to bless people. So we fight everyday warfare with our enemy. We pray blessings on everybody around us. I, I can't tell you how much fun I have standing at the gas pump praying for the person next to me who's grumbling. We open doors and we pray for people. When people allow us to come into their life a little bit, we honor that relationship. It's make love the highest priority there. And then Jesus says the last thing is, heal the sick, announce the kingdom is at hand. All he's saying is, I'm giving you unique kingdom authority. Use it. Bring healing everywhere you go. Bring wholeness and harmony everywhere you go. You be the non-anxious presence in a world full of anxiety. You go out and be among people. You pray for people's well-being and you help them. In your neighborhood, maybe you have a neighbor who's just a jerk. They do exist, really. And you pray for them and they live in such a way that you don't want your kids to see and you don't want to be in part of that neighborhood. But as a kingdom person, 
You look at them through the lens of Jesus who loves them and is for them. He died for them too. Them too. And so you set that aside, all the things you object to, and you enter in a relationship and you look for a way that you can serve them too. Maybe they're sick and you offer to pray for them. You know nobody else in the community is probably doing that. You, you see they're lonely. Of course they're lonely because they're a jerk. And you become their friend. You pay the price to bring them out of loneliness. Because loneliness destroys people. And you help them. How can I serve? You ask the question, what does love require of me here? What does it require of me now? And the last thing Jesus says is the kingdom of God is near. And the reason he says that is because that's the announcement that explains everything when somebody says to you, so why do you hang out with the jerk? Well, because the kingdom of God's available to everybody. Jesus has blessed me. I know you don't know this because I'm such a loving, awesome person now. <laughs> but I have jerkness all over me. I have been a jerk many times. Why do you care about me? Why do you love me like this? Why are you willing to pray for me? I mean, I know you know I don't agree with you about most everything. Well, because I have been at odds with God before, and I know what it's like to be at odds with Him. And our God is a God of love who brings peace and kindness everywhere He goes, and I want to bring that into your life too. You do that? That's some serious spiritual warfare right there. And you kick a little devil butt every day. And because, because there's something in us that doesn't want us to do that, we have to talk about it and think about it seriously and pray for it. So I've invited Jason to come and lead us in some reflection on that. So right now, I just want to ask you to think practically. Think about where it is that God may be sending you. What community, what place, what people that God is sending you out, like the 72 that, he, that Jesus sent out to go and bless those around you, to draw people toward the kingdom of God. And we want to live this way with all the people in our, in our lives, all the places in our lives. I know that's our heart, but... You know, it's, it's really helpful if we just start with one. So can we just start with one? Where's your one place where God is sending you out? Think through all the places that you go on a regular basis. Think about all the interactions that you're able to have in that place. What might change if you just regularly started praying for that community, for the people in that community? What might you begin to notice that you've never noticed before? What might you start to hear about their lives? How might you start to become a blessing to those people? I've already directed your attention to the, the two cards that are on your chair, and I want to ask you to get them both out right now for me. And on that next step card that you have there, there are some spaces that you can fill out 
And I want to ask you right now to just pick a place, one place, and you commit. I'm going to spend the next four weeks, and I'm just going to pray for that place, that community, that space in my life. And as you do, I want you to look for ways to be a blessing that might draw somebody in that space to encounter the kingdom of God in some way. And would you right now just write on that card as a commitment because we as a staff are going to be praying for you. We're going to pray that God empowers you in that place. Maybe if you're honest, you need to take a next step toward experiencing life in God's kingdom yourself because if you're honest, you haven't done that yet. Maybe you're new to our community and like I've been saying all throughout this experience, you're ready to take a next step. Can I once again invite you to consider being a part of that one hour next step class? You can write that on the card as well. Drop that in the bucket as you leave and we'll get you signed up and we'll be ready for you at that place. And I'm going to ask you to take it a step further though. Would you also begin to think of just one person or maybe just one family in that space that you're going to be praying for? that you can specifically pray for opportunities that you might share an invitation with them. Once again, we're not asking you to force yourself on anybody. We're just asking you to pray. And then just watch. Look for open doors to bless them with that invitation. And that's, once again, why we gave you that second card, and that's why I asked you to get that out, that Easter invite card. Put that somewhere where you're going to take it with you and not leave it here today to use that as your reminder to pray for that person pray for that place and to have that opportunity when it's time when it's when the time is right you can share that card or that invitation now i'm going to give you a few minutes just for you to talk to god about all that and just reflect on what your next step might be what one place what one person that god is sending you to and during the time i'm about to give you i'm going to give you that time fill out that card and after you've had that uh, time to do that Our band's going to come back and we're going to sing a song that reminds us what we've been focused on here today. We do not fight battles like our world fights. We fight differently. And the reason we fight differently, can we just remember this? We're not the ones fighting. He's fighting for us. Our God fights for us. We're not alone. He's invited us to cooperate with him, to do his work with him. And the marching orders are pretty clear. So take a few moments, talk to God about your next step, and then we'll sing.